Hello from my cozy little, if not ADHD cluttered studio somewhere along the Wasatch Front. I'm James Hoffines. Here is your host, Major. The cat is co-host and he's napping right now. Welcome to Latter-day Shamed Podcast. And welcome to our second podcast episode. This is exciting. And my Kindle is going to beep as long as I get messages in Messenger. So we'll ignore that if you could hear it. This is the Latter-day Shamed Podcast. Notice that there is a D at the end of Latter-day Shamed because even though we know that institutional shame and person-to-person shaming are prolific in the modern Mormon church. It has been going on since the beginning with Joseph Smith's fiery sword-wielding angel compelling and shaming 14-year-old girls or girls a few months shy of their 15th birthday as the Mormon church's gaslighting explanation goes into he he shamed them into illegally marrying and having sex with him, often behind Emma's back. The first one was Fanny Alger, and Oliver Cowdery caught Joseph and Fanny in the barn. Yeah. But no one shamed Joseph, at least not to the point where he stopped this creepy and, dare I say, predatory, authoritative... Uh, inappropriate, just bad behavior that I think is completely unbecoming of a so-called prophet. But it continues. We lie for the Lord. We shame for the Lord. And the other reason I call it Latter-day Shamed with a D is because I hope I can add to the voices calling for the end of Mormon shame and help put institutional and person-to-person shame in our collective past tense. I've received several stories since the first episode uh, was aired on Friday, and uh, I'll be sharing those stories in the future. I would like to continue collecting shame stories if, if you were shamed or if because of the way you were trained and you were modeling the behavior you were supposed to model and you shamed somebody else either on purpose or not on purpose and you would like to share that with me please do so my email address is in the show notes so I want to talk today about some random shame situations in my own life because I don't want you to feel alone so many of us have been shamed And I hope that by sharing some of these personal, sometimes really painful, vulnerable stories from my life, it'll help you realize that you're definitely not alone. And when I, when I start reading the stories that have been submitted, uh, you'll, you'll know that you're not alone in those situations either. Many of those stories come from women. Many involve purity culture. And uh, yeah, just keep those stories coming and know that I, while I don't, I can't feel what you have felt, I have felt other kinds of shame and I hold space for you for, um, for having to go through that and for wanting to share your stories so that other people may not feel alone in their shame, but also because very often we are not allowed to talk about our, our truth, our shame. And that's, that's a shame in itself. When you leave the church and people tell you to stop posting on Facebook and Instagram and everything else, we're products of our training. We're products of our indoctrination. We have been told all our lives. I've been told since at least the 1970s, every member a missionary. 
When you think of a missionary, you think of somebody who speaks up to tell the truth or the truth according to whoever sent the missionary out, whether it was the Mormons or an, a Baptist church or anything else. They tell their truth, right? They want engagement. They thrive on that engagement because they're trying to pull people in to, uh, to tell their truth and to hopefully get that person as a convert. So when we share our stories, we want engagement too, but you know what we get? We get one of two things, at least in my experience. We either get crickets or we get feedback that is pushback. I've had both recently. And uh, when it's coming from dear friends that you used to know in your old ward to tell you to be quiet and stop sharing your story, stop sharing your truth, well, I'm just doing what I was taught to do. So there's shame even in telling your truth. But let's get back to the to the to the stories I wanted to tell you uh, in in of my life, my experiences. So, um, just before my dad died, we he and I started renting a house, and this was this would have been the end of 2014, and he died in 2017. And for a, for the first year or so, I had a job outside the home, and I was contributing to the finances, buying food, helping to pay rent, prescriptions, all of that, right? Well, there came a point where Dad was not able to be left by himself, not for any significant amount of time. I mean, I tried it a couple of times when I would go go to the store or something and I came back and there was smoke all over the house because he had found what he thought was an apple tree in our backyard and was trying to fry the fruit. It They weren't apples and I don't know why he was trying to fry them. I can only surmise that this was part of his confusion. Um, Dementia took a toll, but it took a while to take a toll. So this was early on, and uh, this was when I started realizing that I can't leave him alone. There was another time that uh, he put a a pot of water on the stove to boil and forgot about it, and the, the water evaporated eventually, and... Yeah, just, you know, dangerous stuff, and I wanted to keep him safe. So there came a point where I had to stop working and take care of him more or less full-time. My siblings definitely helped when they could, and I so appreciate that. But uh, because I wasn't working, we were living off of what he was bringing in through Social Security and his VA benefits and whatever else. I I don't have any idea what other sources he had. But there came a time when we couldn't pay our rent for a few months. And so uh, Dad went to the uh, the bishop to ask for help. This was probably after a couple of times they had already helped with the rent. But at this time, they were resistant. And I was with Dad. I always went in with him because um, he was profoundly hearing impaired and so I wore a microphone type thing around my neck that directly went into his hearing aids so sometimes I had to repeat what other people were saying if they were resistant to wear the microphone or whatever but also because you know my dad was an elderly vulnerable adult and I wanted to make sure he was safe emotionally, spiritually, in every way, just so I can, you know, back up what what he thought he heard. And because of his memory loss, he wasn't always able to tell me anyway what really went on in the office. 
so anyway, this time they were resistant. So we met with the state president. And as we were meeting with the state president and he was being resistant, either me or my dad, I think it was me who, who said, you know, dad is, by this time he was probably 85 years old. Dad is 85 years old, which means for at least 65 years, he has paid into the welfare system. He has done it consistently, continually. He's never missed a fast Sunday where you didn't see him sitting at a desk, writing a check out to the church for his tithing and other offerings that are required by the church. He never missed. So I pointed that out to the stake president. I said, don't, doesn't that count for anything? And the stake president looked at me and he said, you know, that's not, that's not how it works. Really? You have, well, I'm sure he didn't know about this at this time, but the church has hundreds of billions of dollars basically sitting in a silo somewhere and they can't help people. I understand now the church won't pay rent at all for anybody. That's the policy. I'm sure that there are bishops who are kind enough and compassionate enough to help anyway. But it's like, you know, leadership roulette. You get who you get and you have to go by what they say. So eventually, I guess, from my memory, my memory's a little hazy, but he must have said yes. So we did have to go back to the bishop. And uh, I guess the stake president communicated that it was okay. But then this bishop required me and my 85-year-old dad to clean the church on Saturdays. Yeah, he wanted my elderly father to push around a vacuum or or swab the deck um, or clean the windows or the toilets or whatever. 85 years old. I could understand them requiring me to do it because I also lived in the house, but him, and I got a, he, dad had no resistance to this at all. He's always loved serving in the church and I admire him for that. He was even taking welfare assignments well into his eighties. I would take him down, go in with him. He would get an assignment. I would leave and they would call me and tell me he, they, or he would call me and tell me it's time to come pick him up. And I would, but he, he just loved service, so this didn't bother him at all. Um, it bothered him physically afterward. He was very sore for a while. But yeah, at 85, they made him go clean toilets. Again, for a church with hundreds of billions of dollars that this bishop didn't know about either. So that's really not part of this particular argument. Um... You know, with that money, though, I just want to say if anybody from the strengthening church member committee or anybody from the higher ups in the church are listening and you want a suggestion, well, even if you don't, I'm going to give it to you. You've got that money. Why don't you hire janitors and pay them a decent wage and also help people in need? Okay. Next, you know, I have an extreme discomfort of singing in public. I have been told that I have a good voice when I sing, but I don't believe it. And uh, that's, that's another story. But anyway, I think I got my extreme discomfort of singing in public from when I was a, a little boy in primary, you know, uh, in, in, in Latter-day Saint or Mormon, uh, churches on uh, Sundays, especially like Father's Day, Mother's Day, maybe Easter, Christmas. There are times when they'll pull the whole primary together and primary school consists of children from three to 11 and they teach them songs. They help them memorize very short talks or scriptures. So when these occasions come, they take over the sacrament meeting. Once the sacrament or 
communion in other faith traditions language once that service that part of the service is over all the kids will file up to the front and uh, sit in this in the choir chairs on the stand and then uh, sometimes all together or sometimes individually or sometimes individual classes or ages will sing songs like for Mother's Day or Father's Day and uh, they just kind of take over the whole meeting <clears throat> excuse me um, but I absolutely hated singing in public I just I was always uncomfortable with public singing like when somebody else would come in uh, maybe somebody I didn't know you know sometimes there'd be like a trio in a family that would come in and sing a song in sacrament meeting and I always 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 felt embarrassment for them I don't know why they were great singers but I couldn't enjoy it because I was too busy feeling anxious and probably connecting to my own discomfort of singing myself in public but I was shamed into singing with the primary when I was a little boy in primary and the reasoning was always well look everybody else is doing it and they're having fun you have to do it too and my mom was in the primary presidency and no shade to my mom but she made me do it too yeah peer pressure from primary presidency perfect then later when I was in the elders quorum uh, so the elders quorum are men who are over the age of 18 uh, back when this happened they had um, two quorums for older men or brethren whatever you want to call it they have the elders quorum and uh, you know they they're authorized to do a whole lot of things but then they have something above had something above that called high priests and it wasn't called a quorum it was called a group so the president their presidency was called group leaders and my dad had been a group leader many many times but those are the people who have had uh, or who were ordained high priests from being an elder they were ordained high priests so they could do more visible callings like bishop or high councilman or being in the stake presidency or being in the bishopric notice there's no women here yeah different story anyway um so back then there were those two quorums and there was this guy who moved into our ward and his music his 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 family was a musical family and he loved music he loved to sing he loved to play the piano and he was just so energetic and enthusiastic that he talked our bishopric or our bishop into him arranging for each presidency of the auxiliaries the elders quorum priest quorum primary presidency uh, relief society presidency young women young men's presidencies um, and the bishopric themselves to have on different Sundays each presidency would go up on the stand and sing a song and we would rehearse either during I think it was just right after elders quorum so because I was in the elders quorum presidency I was the second counselor I was pretty well pressured into having to do this thing of learning this song practicing rehearsing by singing with uh, four other men the secretary the first counselor the president and this man who was playing the piano to accompany us and I was just anxious I was so uncomfortable I hated it but again peer pressure because how would it look if just the first counselor and the president and the secretary were up there singing and I was sitting in the congregation trying to hide trying to make myself small as I, as I look back I I think I hope I would have with what I know now had personal authority to just stand up and say no this this is not going to be I'm not going to do this or 
you know, I could have feigned being sick and just stayed at home. But anyway, I had to sing and it was truly, truly uncomfortable. Um, as that Sunday grew near, I was getting more and more panicky. Uh, I feel I did a horrible job. And I'm sure a lot of that was doing to the, due to the anxiety. Okay, there's that story. The next story. Uh, my first marriage took place in a church meeting house in 1985. We weren't allowed to be married in the chapel, but we were allowed to be married in the Relief Society room. Now, the Relief Society is, is a group for women. They say it's the largest women's organization in the world, and I, I believe them. Um, but the Relief Society are, are women from 18 years on up. And they meet once a week in Sunday on Sunday. I guess it's every other week now with the two-hour meeting schedule. But anyway, so they have a room just for them. And it's, it's a beautiful room. It always is. Uh, it's always because it's decorated by women and not, you know, the elders. <laughs> so it's always a beautiful uh, room, well-appointed. And uh, so that's where my first wife and I were married in 1985. Uh, we never got sealed in a Mormon temple, which would have meant that we would have supposedly been sealed to be husband and wife for the rest of eternity. And that was the only way to do it. But anyway, we were never sealed and That's another story. And I'm grateful that I wasn't sealed. We weren't sealed. She's grateful too. She's doing great now. Um, but while, while I was in the, in the church bathroom and I was changing into my tux to get married, my future father-in-law was also changing in the bathroom. And when he saw me drop my pants and he saw my boxers, he pointed to his temple garments and said, Someday, you need to be wearing these. Now, temple garments, uh, you can look them up online now because the church has talked about them and shown photographs of them on, uh, not on people, but, you know, you can see them. But they are supposed to be a representation that you remember your covenants and they are supposed to protect you from evil and there are many many folklore stories that they're supposed to protect you physically from like fire car accidents bullets and things like that but anyway so when you go to the temple for the first time you're required to put on these garments and you are supposed to wear them day and night for the rest of your life with a few exceptions you don't wear them while you're bathing you don't wear wear them while you're swimming you generally don't wear them when you're exercising and you don't wear them when you're having sex. I know that's a surprise to a lot of young LDS married couples because I've heard horror stories of these young couples thinking that either while they're having sex or as soon as they're done having sex, they have to put those things back on. And I think that's a culture thing. Because you don't have to. You can stay with you. You can cuddle naked with your partner for for the rest of the night or, or whatever. But anyway, getting back to it. So he pointed to his garments and he said, Someday you need to be wearing these. It was a statement, but it was also a directive, like a, like a commandment. Um, he and I never did, did get along after that. Um, like, in fact... He and my wife and I, we all worked at the same call center at the same time. And not longer, not long after my ex and I had been married, uh, he walked up to my desk uninvited. He was in a different department, so we never saw each other unless it was going to be on purpose. So he came to see me on purpose and he put a paper sack on my desk. He pointed to it and said, you need to use these every time. Then he walked away. I opened the sack and it was boxes of condoms. He 
And later I found out his wife, my ex's parents, they didn't want my grandchildren. Now, someone could try and make the argument that his actions in this incident were not related to the church, but I disagree. He definitely felt superior to me because he was an active uh, high priest in the church. He was a member of the church and I was just a Jack Mormon who very often smelled like cigarettes. And then much later, when my state president, my new state president was interviewing me and my future, my second wife, to be sealed in the temple, which we did and I'm grateful for it even now, the state president who was interviewing us, he pulled a letter out of the inside of his jacket. It was from my former father-in-law, the father of my first wife. My father-in-law wanted to make sure my new state president knew all about me and my character and my past sins according to his point of view. To have to discuss this with my new state president was painful. These were things that I had repented of and had left in the past, but now I was having to almost confess them again to somebody else who had nothing to do with that time period of 1995 or before or since until I moved into his stake. Now, let me, let me point out something for those of you who may not be uh, Mormon or never Mormon. A lot of, a lot of ex-Mormons and post-Mormons are going to know what I say. Hi, Exmos. Good to, good to have you here. Um, so a, a ward in the Mormon church is a, a congregation, usually about three to 400 people. Um, activity rates vary, but when I was a membership clerk, our ward had about 20% activity rate. Um, but anyway, so you could compare a ward to a Catholic um, parish in you know size and scope and, and purpose. And a stake is a grouping of several wards, maybe five to ten, uh, and the stake would be more comparable to a Catholic diocese in form and function population. So, so I don't, you know, I don't think active members have the critical thinking skills. And, and I'm, I'm not throwing shade on members. This is institutional. As John DeLynn constantly says on Mormon stories, we blame the institution, we blame the systems, not the people, because we all get caught up in it. I was part of shaming people because I was trained and I modeled that behavior that I had seen and experienced. So anyway, I don't think that active members can comprehend when those of us who have left the church want to share or feel the absolute need to share stories like these in public on social media. They think, and I have been told even like within the last 24 hours of when I'm making this episode, when I'm recording this, I was told to stop, to be quiet. Um, you know, like that's enough. Uh, somebody even posted that, you know, to to those of you who I'm going to unfriend soon because all you can do is talk this and talk that. But, but they don't understand the absolute need for us to speak out. They think we should just be quiet. Stop talking about it. There is that thought-stopping phrase that I think originally originated with Elder Neil A. Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles back in the 70s or 80s that apostates can leave the church, but they can't leave the church alone. That's a, that's a thought stopper. When you try to when you try to share a story that is so 
painful and integral to who you are and somebody says you can leave the church but you can't leave it alone the intention of that phrase is to stop not only stop me from speaking but to stop them themselves from thinking about it from considering it from considering where I'm coming from you know I think I mentioned before in this episode but members of the Mormon church are encouraged to be missionaries yes I did say it in this episode because I remember the phrase every member a missionary but when we try to share our truth we're shut down we either get pushed back or you know crickets but now that I'm on the other side of it now that I am quote unquote an apostate because I resigned my membership in November because the church is homophobic and racist and misogynist, misogynistic and, uh, and dishonest and unapologetic. That's, those are really good reasons why I left. Those are the big ones. I didn't leave because I wanted to sin. I didn't leave because I wanted to go to a bar. I could do that being a member and feel comfortable about it. Um, but anyway, so now that I'm on the other side, um, I see and I feel the cathartic and the therapeutic benefit of speaking truth. Getting it out of our systems is vital to our healing. Many of us have something called religious trauma syndrome, and it's real. You can Google it. It's real. RTS or religious trauma syndrome. Many, many, many of us have experienced trauma. The first episode I shared with you, a lot of my trauma stems from that incident with the uh, LDS family services or social services counselor in my bishop's office with my parents present. A lot of trauma from that. I am scarred by that. You're going to hear stories from other people that have scarred them, these events. And if you want a really, really good um, collection of stories that have scarred and traumatized children who are now adults google sam young and protect lds youth or i think it's just protect youth now there are stories of horrible horrible incidents where where a child goes into a bishop's office because they're invited in or told to go into bishop's office and even starting at like eight, nine, ten years old, you're in there by yourself with a middle-aged or an old man. The door is shut behind you. He's sitting in a chair that is usually bigger than the folding chair you're sitting in on the other side of the desk. So already that power dynamic is there. And whether you're a boy or a girl, Sometimes they will ask incredibly invasive questions. I've read stories on Sam's website and I've heard stories that have been submitted to this podcast of or and on or on other episodes, excuse me, on other podcasts like uh, Girls Camp and uh, Mormonish and Mormon stories where young women and sometimes younger girls are asked where did you touch yourself how did it feel did you orgasm what were you thinking or fantasizing about while you were masturbating and you know I've also heard stories of, of people who didn't know that word masturbation and so guess who introduced the concept to them their bishop. Yep, their bishop. And I heard one guest on Mormon Stories. This was this would have been one of the very first episodes of Mormon Stories. Uh, this boy was asked in an interview as a boy if he uh, watched bestiality porn. Guess who introduced the idea of bestiality? to a young innocent boy his freaking church leader his bishop 
this is crazy. So, you know, I, I, I remember when I was a true blue Mormon, probably five years ago when I was really active and really, really doing all the things that, yeah, I would have, I would have shut it down too, because as members, Mormons are taught that apostates are dangerous. We've literally become, we've literally been called a virus. So like, I guess COVID, like if you are a true blue Mormon and you talk to me on the street, you're going to get infected. Even if we don't talk about this stuff, I have one brother. He took me to lunch not long after I resigned and he asked what happened. I have another sister who asked what happened. And in both cases, I got to tell you, it was really liberating just to hear somebody who loves you or is supposed to love you without condition says what happened. But in both cases, you get to a certain point and then they don't want to hear anymore. They can't hear anymore because if they do, they might be infected with apostasism, I guess you could call it. Apostasy 19, or in my case 22, because that's when I resigned. But yeah, I would have I would have definitely shut those stories down. And you know, one of the funniest things, now that I'm out, I remember so many talks about, you know, not going to anti-Mormon sources because they are, you know, secondhand information. They're not the original documents. But now that the internet is here, we're seeing original documents. But the, but the funniest part of that is the Mormons themselves haven't seen the original documents. Not one Mormon, including, I believe, Joseph Smith or the 15 witnesses, have ever seen golden plates. And even if it's true, that there were golden plates and Joseph and the 15 saw them. No contemporary Mormon, unless they're in the church vault in Salt Lake City, has seen the golden plates. So them reading from the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price, those are all secondhand, infer, uh, secondhand sources just like what they accuse us of looking at before we apostatize. So anyway, that's a long rant and I'm sorry about that, but let's get back to, let's get back to here. Um, where was I? All right. So yeah, I don't think that active members can understand. I, I totally remember that feeling, but I want you to understand something. These shame stories, the ones I have already shared and the ones I'm going to talk about in the future, they come from people. They are human beings, real human beings. They have feelings, they have thoughts, they have ideas. Often they have trauma, but these are not, you know, I, I almost memorized my membership number. We all get assigned a membership number in the church, but these are not just membership numbers. These are human beings who have been scarred and traumatized by the shame that is so institutionalized in the Mormon church. And even though I'm not going to read their names, I know who they are. I know their names. I know they're human beings. So I don't know if, if I need to bear a testimony here to tell you that I know these people are real human beings and I believe their stories. We have been told time and time again in real society that if a woman or human, uh, a woman, a man, a boy, a girl, a non-binary person says they have been assaulted, raped, anything like that, the first, the, the default is to believe them and not to, not to disbelieve them because you think it sounds outlandish. Like I've heard people say about stories like what's on Sam Young's website, like, oh, bishops would never do that. They didn't do it to me. It must be your Utah culture. Bullshit. It's from all over the world. These are real people, my listeners. 
I humbly ask you to please keep that in mind. They are real people. So I invite you to consider these stories and put yourself in their place. How would you feel if someone did or said these things to you? What if they said them to your spouse or your son or daughter or non-binary child? What if it was said to one of your grandparents or your parents? Then how would you feel about these situations? Please consider that. Finally, one last shame story from my life. There actually may be two, but they're kind of combined. So I told you that when I married for the first time, it was in 1995. And my ex-wife and I had moved into a ward where my cousin, by marriage, was my bishop. Um, I don't remember why, but not long after we moved in, I was in his office for some kind of an interview. And uh, some of the questions he asked me, now that I can look back with critical thinking and a clearer mind were so over the top, inappropriate, and none of his effing business. Of course I couldn't see that back then. Because, as I said in episode one, I was raised to tell the truth, especially to church leaders. I was raised that if you did certain things, you confessed it. You made the appointment. You voluntarily sat behind that closed door in that little chair while your bishop hovered over you and while you confessed. And based on Bishop Roulette, you either got shaming church discipline or it was like, oh yeah, that's okay. Just try not to do it again. I've had both. Anyway, so this cousin of mine, um, yeah, he was just asking these intimate questions and if somewhere to, somebody were to ask me today in that setting or in any other setting, if I masturbate or if I look at pornography or if my wife does or, 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 I might be tempted to punch him in the throat. Of course, I wouldn't do that. I wasn't raised that way. Now... I would just walk away from the situation. But talk about shame. My own cousin, by marriage, asking questions about my intimacy with myself and my wife's intimacy with herself and our intimacy and our behavior behind closed doors. That's none of his effing business. I don't think I ever went back to that ward. Nope. I didn't. And then a couple of months ago, I was invited to my sister's house for a sibling reunion. Now, again, let me remind you that I'm very privileged in that my siblings have, uh, they have accepted my, my new reality, my new truth. Well, they don't know the truth, but they have accepted me as a, an ex-Mormon, a non-Mormon. They're all very, very good Mormons. And uh, I love them. And I think the church is very good for them. I think they should stay in. (laughs) You know, what's ironic is my oldest sister, well, let's just say she had some issues. And I, and I don't think I'm alone in this. None of us really thought that she would ever be able to go to the temple. But the ironic thing is, at the end of her life, well, she she's still alive. Within the last year or so, um, she's been in a care center, and she she had to quit smoking. She quit other things, uh, word of wisdom wise, and uh, she was uh, she was given a temple recommend. She was found worthy to get a temple recommend. So my oldest sister was going deeper into the church, uh, going to the temple, taking her endowment out at the same time I was leaving the church. And let me be clear, the church is going to be very, very good for her. It already is. And it's very good for my siblings and a lot of people. But for some, it's not. 
some of us have had some really terrible experiences. So a couple of months ago, I was at my sister's house. We were out on the patio. I was sitting in a corner of uh, the railing. So I was, you know, kind of cornered in, which was okay because, you know, I was getting a lot of food. But um, although my siblings have been really good about not intentionally triggering me by bringing up things about the church. Uh, we were out there just, you know, having a good time talking about old songs we grew up with. I'm the youngest of eight. So we were talking about, you know, like bread and Billy Joel and the Beatles and God forbid Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. <laughs> you can either like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, not both. But anyway, this same cousin who's my bishop, he showed up unexpectedly. I didn't know he was coming. My sister who was hosting invited him when she ran into him at the store, but she didn't, she didn't know my relationship with him. So it was a very innocent invitation and I, you know, no shade to her at all, but he showed up and he stood there on the top stair and he would not shut the F up about anything and everything Mormon. He talked about missions. He talked about temple work. He talked about church lessons and church talks and general conference talks. And if it was about the church, I think he talked about it. I just sat in the corner. I was literally being cornered and wishing one of us, either him or me could just disappear. And it took a while, but he finally left. Oh my God, I was so, so re-traumatized from that interview and from all the shit that he brought up that triggered me again and again and again. So these memories, they don't go away. They stick with us until we're able to deal with them somehow. Therapy is a really good way if you can afford it. I can't afford it, and so many other people can't afford it. But it's therapeutic to throw something up on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or YouTube or Snapchat because it helps. It helps to get it out. When you have, when you have a, bad, a bad encounter with a company, like a customer service rep that treats you rudely, what do you do? You go tell your friends, you complain about it, you put it on social. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say one is, or they're both equally traumatizing because clearly being treated poorly by a customer service agent, the, the, the stakes are much, much lower, but you still talk about it, right? So if the stakes are much, much higher, we're going to talk about it. We're not going to, to just go away as Neil Maxwell and many, many LDS people have told me to do. And in fact, I saw a post yesterday from a Facebook friend. She and I used to be in the same stake, but not the same ward. And, uh, you know, she and her husband and I were kind of friends. Uh, they're both Facebook friends. And she threw something up on Facebook yesterday. And it said something like, um, people who leave the church aren't hungry enough. And she said, I think before that it was like, you know, partaking of the church is like eating a good meal or something like that. And, um, and people who leave the church like me, we just weren't hungry enough. <laughs> you know, I've had a not hungry enough. I've had a belly full. I am so full of discontent, frustration, anger, betrayal, because the church not only lied, but the way they treat marginalized communities, the same kind of communities that Jesus Christ would have gone to and eaten with while he ignored the church leaders of his time. The church is homophobic, it's misogynistic, it was and continues to be racist. It's right there in the Book of Mormon and the, uh, the Pearl of Great Price. If you're white and delightsome, you're sin-free, you're righteous. But if you have a dark skin, hmm, not so much. <sighs> but anyway, these, 
these stick with us until we're able to deal with them. And until we deal with them, yep, we're going to probably speak about them and we're going to do it publicly, just like we were taught in the church. Talk your truth. All right. Hey, listen, listen, if you tuned in and you listened to the end, we're almost to an hour. Wow. Um, I want to thank you very much. I really appreciate you hanging in there with me. If you find value in this content, could I please ask you to like and share and comment? Let's get a good discussion going in the comments, where whatever platform you're listening to this on, Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, whatever. But uh, And also, subscribe so you know when new episodes are coming out and hit the little bell so you are notified every time one comes out. And also, since this is now my full-time job, um, I'm a disabled vet, so I would also invite you to please donate to the podcast. Um, my Venmo and my Cash App links are in the show notes. Uh, it's JWHSLC for both. And uh, finally, I'm still always looking for stories where you have been shamed or you have been trained to shame and you've done so either intentionally or unintentionally, please email your submissions to latterdayshamed at gmail.com and that address is also in the show notes. I really hope you're able to find grace and hold space for yourself and others as we all heal. Forgive your younger self Forgive yourself as you are now. Please be kind and compassionate to you. And I will talk to you on the next episode of Latter-day Shamed Podcast. I'm James Hoffines, happily free from the Mormon Church since November 2022. See ya.